0: For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, listen to the story of a Holocaust survivor from Poland. It's part of the AZPM Living History Project, Children of the Holocaust. Find out how the Peaceful Sky Benefit is bringing together concerned citizens and artists to protect sacred lands and the desert ecosystem. Plus, a song from Tucson singer and songwriter, Gabrielle Petrangelo. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. From 1941 to 1945, Germany's Nazi regime murdered two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Of the six million Jews who were victims of this genocide known as the Holocaust, an estimated 1.5 million were children. Against all odds, some children managed to survive. Children of the Holocaust is AZPM's living history project. Project producer Laura Markowitz interviewed 19 child survivors of the Holocaust who now live in southern Arizona. This is the story of one of them. His name is Pavel Lichter. Be aware that this story contains descriptions of the attempted genocide of the Jewish people. This content may not be suitable for all listeners.
1: Ripin is a small town in north-central Poland. Jews first settled there in the 1600s. Before the Holocaust, it was home to a thriving Jewish community. Pavel Lichter was born there in 1931. He and his older sister Gina lived with their parents, grandmother and other relatives in a three-story building owned by the family. Next door was a movie house that his father owned and operated. The Lichters were well off.
2: I had all kinds of toys and the, the most Modern toy that I had was a bicycle, and the seat was of wood. That was the latest thing there is. So, childhood was very, very beautiful for me. I was extremely protected by my parents. Uh, By this, the way they protected me uh, was to send me to a school that was uh, a Jewish school. and uh, and the reason for it was because the Jews were extremely persecuted in public schools.
1: Pavel says his whole future had already been mapped out for him by his parents. As was the custom of that time, they had chosen his future bride and came to an agreement with her parents.
2: A girl that I always played with before the war, her name was Rania.
1: But in the background of this happy childhood, Poland was preparing for war.
2: I was aware of Hitler because we, we had a radio. My mother and father were very attentive to the radio, listening to Hitler with his diatribe.
1: On September 8, 1939, the German army rolled into Pavel's town.:
2: Equipment, tanks, Horses went through the town. The army and the equipment that was coming through was, I think, maybe a mile long. Everybody was scared that they're gonna gas us, but they did not. And then they passed the town and there was nothing until the next day. Then the Gestapo came in. And things started to change immediately.
1: The Nazis randomly rounded up men off the streets, Jews and Poles, and took them in for interrogation.
2: That's when they grabbed my uncle. His name was Israel Lichter. Took him to a place which not too far from us, a cellar. They tortured him for many days. They would put cement in their mouth, so he died horribly.
1: Within that first week, the Nazis burned down the synagogue and religious school. They blamed the Jews for the fire and ordered them to pay a steep fine. Then the Nazis showed up at the Lichter's home.
2: The Gestapo came in. They told us to move to one bedroom, it was very small, with well, everybody my sister and I, and my mother and my father, so we were not allowed to get out from that bedroom.
1: The SS imposed tight restrictions on the Jewish population. Jews were required to do forced labor. They were not allowed to earn a livelihood. They could be shot if they weren't wearing a yellow patch on their outer garments, identifying them as Jews. Pavel saw the German soldiers bullying Jews and humiliating them.
2: They were also slapped around. That included my father. One night, they came in to the house.
1: Pavel was eight years old.
2: To that room where we were in, and my sister and myself were in one corner of the bed. They started by telling my father to bring down a safe that they noticed that was there. A little safe, but it was extremely heavy. My father had a heart condition, and my mother pleaded with them. They made him take it down anyway.
1: Watching his own parents be humiliated by the Nazis left a tremendous impression on Pavel.
2: It's impossible to see. There was the most horrible time that I had with this.
1: His family had many Polish friends in town who were of German descent.
2: They called him v-
1: They urged Pavel's parents to leave and help the family secure travel documents under false German names. So
2: my father got a, a horse and, and a wagon and put whatever was dear to us in in the silver and stuff like that, and valuables in the wagon, and we escaped. The only way to go was east, which was Russia.
1: His aunt and grandmother fled with them. All the adults were fluent in German. So when SS patrols stopped them, they could claim to be patriotic Germans who were answering Hitler's call for Aryans to settle the lands to the east.
2: We had an Auschwitz. Auschwitz is a permit to travel. So, so that's how it went through.
1: Pavel can't recall how long they were on the road in that wagon, but he remembers that it was a long trip.
2: And the wagon is very slow. You don't make more maybe 10 miles a day.
1: They were stopped again at a German checkpoint near the border.
2: And we were giving them the same story as before, and they says, no, you all Jews, and you get out of there and line up over here, all of us. The whole bunch of us, one after another, against the wall. They were going to shoot us. Then the commanding officer came by us, and he saw my father. And he saw my father, and he said, Oh my God, you look like my professor. So,
1: her professor, go over there. He let the whole family go.
2: Which is another miracle for us.
1: They made it to the border of Russia.
2: Now our job was to cross the border.
1: Some of the locals offered to help them cross, but only if Pavel's family left all their belongings behind.
2: So we did. They took us out. It was miserable. It was, this happened in more or less in December. So everything was muddy and cold and penetrating. But we got through that and we went to the border Then the Russians stopped us.
1: Now they could say they were Jews. The soldiers brought them to a town where Jewish families took them in.
2: And they gave us food, beds.
1: A week later, the Russian soldiers gave them a choice, either become citizens of the Soviet Union or be deported back to Poland. Pavel's mother decided that they should go back to Poland.
2: She didn't want to become a Russian citizen. She hated them.
1: But the Russians didn't follow through on their threat. Instead, they put the Lichter family on a train. Pavel remembers cattle cars with no real place to sit. They were taken into the upper Ural Mountains, a long journey with no food, no water, no bathrooms. Whenever the train stopped, they ran out to get hot water from the Russian soldiers.
2: We survived with the hot water.
1: They spent a month in a town whose name he can't remember, and then they were put on another train and taken to Bukhara. It's a small city in Uzbekistan.
2: In Bukhara, we passed a terrible, terrible time. They had famine over there, and we arrived in the middle of the famine. People were dying on the streets.
1: His whole family lived in the storeroom of a dilapidated building, sharing it with a few other people. They were there for four years.
2: We all had lice with all the possible bugs that you can think of. It was horrible.
1: His grandmother died. Pavel said the rest of the family barely survived. He remembers always being hungry. One day, he was out searching for food with some other kids.
2: I was attacked by a bunch of Uzbeks otorgics, I don't know which one they were, and they put a knife in my back.
1: There was no penicillin, and the wound became infected. He was in a coma for weeks, and it took him months to recover. When he turned 12, the family was sent to Siberia. The refugees were all put to work there. He remembers foraging for food. The war ended in 1945, and the Soviet government gave the Lichter family permission to return to Poland.
2: And finally, we arrived. We went directly to our house. The house was uh, completely occupied. There was no room for, for us.
1: Eventually, they left Poland and moved to Mexico City. Later, he got married and had three children. Did you tell your story?
2: very often, about what happened to you? I never
1: talked
2: to them about it. Why? I didn't want anybody to know. When I think about those things, I I, I really suffer again, you know?
1: At the end of World War II, there were only a handful of Jews left in Pavel's hometown. Half the Jewish population of Poland, three million people, died during the Holocaust. But the English language Wikipedia page for Ripin Poland never mentions the word Jew once. Under World War II, it says, the Polish population was subjected to an extensive genocidal campaign. No one argues that Jews were the only ones to suffer or perish during the war. But overlooking the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people is a significant omission. Holocaust denial and Holocaust distortion are increasing around the world. That was the reason behind the UN General Assembly's passage of a resolution in 2022 to combat Holocaust denial and distortion. With the internet, it's easier than ever to spread misinformation about the events that took place more than 80 years ago. That's why Holocaust survivors like Pavel Lichter feel compelled to tell their stories in spite of the personal cost of revisiting those memories. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura
0: Markowitz. Time truly is running out to listen and bear witness to the stories of Holocaust survivors. On the morning that this story first aired, February 9th, 2023, Pavel Lichter passed away. He was 91 years old. He is survived by his loving wife, Sarah, his three daughters, seven grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. To hear the full interview with Pavel Lichter and more stories of survival from AZPM's Children of the Holocaust Project, visit azpm.org. Concerned citizens from a range of local communities want their voices to be heard by the United States Air Force. The goal is to limit the number of aerial maneuvers and low-altitude flyovers that can occur over sacred lands and the vulnerable Sonoran Desert ecosystem. To this end, a four-day series of talks and art events will be happening all over the area. And I asked two of the participants to tell us more.
3: My name's Melinda. Melinda and I'm a volunteer facilitator for the Peaceful Sky Benefit.
4: My name is Ruben Bog, and I'm going to be one of the poets that is featured in the Peaceful Sky Benefit.
3: The event is organized in response to proposals that were released by the Air Force last year. These proposals would fundamentally change or alter the experience of being in the outdoors in a lot of Arizona and also in New Mexico.
0: And why is that?
3: They involve escalations of Air Force training that are extreme. They're extreme and they're very different from um, what they're permitted to do at this time. The most extreme parts of the plans involve permission to fly as low as 500 feet and 100 feet above the ground in rural communities and national forests and many protected wilderness areas. These lower levels are proposed in lots of places where jets currently only have permission to fly as low as 3,000 feet.
0: So are these regulations in place now? Are planes flying this low?
3: There are a few areas where they are permitted to fly as low as 100 feet from the ground and other areas where they are permitted to fly uh, 500 feet above the ground, but this would vastly increase that area. And like I said, over rural communities, national forests, and a lot of protected wildernesses.
0: Ruben, can you tell us something about the impact that this has on people living in these rural areas?
4: This has always been a part of my life. As far back as I can remember, there's always been sonic booms flying over our areas on the rez. I was thinking about when she was talking about um, going as low as 100 feet, I remember driving back to our office um, on 86 and there was a jet that flew over us. We're like maybe maybe 15 feet like above us and we're, we're on the highway on 86. I was going back to cells. So it's, 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 it's always been a part of my life. It's always just been a common thing, but I worked in the air department there, so learning about uh, our ambient air and what kind of pollution that jets, planes, things like that, cause uh, in in the air and to fly that low. The PMs that it emits in that time, it it, it stays for a little bit at that low that it hovers down. So plants are soaking that up, things like that. It's not good for the environment. It's definitely not good for human beings.
3: Ruben just mentioned sonic booms. So that's another element of their proposals. Right now, the lowest level they're permitted to make sonic booms in Arizona and New Mexico that I'm aware of is usually about 10,000 feet, and they want to cut that in half to 5,000 feet in, in many areas. So again, uh, things, as you just said, health concerns, this is directly related to cognitive impairment in children, also in heart disease, that type of, I would say, exposure, like community exposure, is directly correlated with those things. And of course, it would change the way It feels to be out in a lot of these remote areas, hiking, birding, uh, riding your horse, that sort of thing. It, It would be a very different direction for outdoor recreation in Arizona and New Mexico also.
0: And so beyond even the safety and health concerns, we're talking about economic impact on the state because birding, horseback riding, some of our most popular tourist activities.
3: Uh, this was new to me to learn this in in just the past few years when I returned here recently, and that's that this is the most biodiverse area of the continental United States. It has a really unique amount of species found only here and a very unique amount of species traveling from other countries. So the Air Force says that they need more training space than they already have But it really doesn't make sense for them to fill their training gaps here. They are also stewards. They should be stewards of ecological infrastructure here that's supporting wildlife all the way from South America. Neither should they fill those gaps above communities that have had the lion's share of environmental impacts here for generations.
0: Do you have anything you'd like to share, Ruben, about how growing up in the community that you come from has taught you a different idea of what stewardship requires and demands?
4: I used to garden with my grandma a lot. So when we would work gardens or fields, a lot of like our philosophies were given at that time. They sing songs, tell stories. So you got a lot of history there. And then in terms of the balance of just the ecosystem, that's just kind of that's a like we don't take more than we need. We don't um, pollute. We don't we don't desecrate. We don't we don't do none of those things. We're not supposed to. I was talking to Melinda, um, I think one of our first com- conversations I was talking about how we're on federal land. We're supposedly a sovereign nation, but we still have to adhere to the government impacts of, for instance, the border patrol, the wall that's down there, that that impacts uh, animals that, that migrate back and forth. Uh, they, they reroute that whole thing, and that's been there for centuries, Those those, those paths for them. Most tribes in America are dependent on, on federal funding. If something like the Air Force comes in and says, hey, we want to do this, blah, 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 there's some negotiation. But it's at the end of that, you're, you want to be a good Indian because you want to continue to get this funding and you want to continue to get the support from the government. And it falls back on tribal leadership if that's something that they're willing to, to fight. It could be fought, but it, it might cost you something. So that's, that's always been our thing. And so it's yeah. not like we're, we're totally sovereign. We are really reminded at times that you're conquered people. It's is like, you know, be good Indians and do what we tell you to do kind of thing.
0: Yeah. If you had sovereign control, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Yes. So what kind of shape has the peaceful sky benefit taken? What are we talking about happening in the days between February 19th and the 22nd?
3: on these four different dates there's four events that are essentially concerts but with other creative activity going on around and the first one is at pigeon palace arts and that involves um, musicians from all over the southwest coming together and playing in small ensembles during the daytime from two to six inside and outdoors and that's all ages and it's free Later that evening, they're all going to join together as an orchestra, and Laura Telly, the Diné Poet Laureate, is going to speak.
0: Do you have anything in your mind that you really hope is accomplished by this benefit?
3: The aim is that more people know, first off, about these proposals, The other aim is just that people pay more attention to this in general, that this is just a very small piece of a much bigger picture that needs to change. It's apparently been this way, as Ruben often says, from day one. It's time for it to be done better. Ticket proceeds are going to go to the Border Chronicle, if you haven't heard of them. They are an online journal that is providing really fresh, exciting coverage of border issues, and they're going to cover these proposals. There's also going to be the opportunity at the events to contribute using your phone directly to local nonprofits, and we'll give you uh, limited edition prints by regional artists as a thank you gift if you do that, and there's going to be tables with information about the proposals themselves.
0: Thanks to Melinda and Ruben for that information. Now here's a song from a Tucson artist who'll be performing as part of the Peaceful Sky Benefit, musician and songwriter Gabrielle Petrangelo. She Gabriel Petrangelo sang El Gran Altar. It was inspired by the El Pinacate Wilderness in northwest Sonora, just south of the U.S.-Mexico border. Petrangelo will be among many artists contributing to the Peaceful Sky Benefit, playing a show at Groundworks on February 22nd at 7.30, all ages admitted. There's a link for tickets on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.